You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figured out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's incredibly easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on COVID Plus Test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited to have Joe Delamura back on our show. If you recall, I think it was in January. He was just stepping off of one major, major project and jumping into another major project with uh, COVID-19 response with FEMA. He's a logistics chief there. In fact, he was the logistics chief that was assigned to the White House task force during the COVID testing phase. And so it's pretty incredible his experiences there. Now he's working on about a million different other projects, not just with COVID, but with everything else there at FEMA. Joe, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, John. Happy to be back. So let's talk about it. Some From January, so the, 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 the testing mission finished. You got all that ramped, ramped up. You did like a lot of innovative things there. We talked about that last time. What have you been working on since January? Seems like just about everything. Uh, <laughs> we... Uh, We've been primarily focused on the national vaccine campaign uh, at FEMA, as you uh, may recall. Uh, one of the uh, campaign promises and inauguration uh, speech items was uh, 100 million shots in arms in the first 100 days. Um, we uh, far exceeded that, obviously, at this point. Uh, but we've been working basically on the deployment of uh, 
personnel and vaccine to meet that goal. So my role now is I serve as the national vaccination coordinator uh, for FEMA, which involves the deployment of medical forces to all states and territories in order to uh, administer the uh, the vaccine to the selected populations. You need to like start putting up your titles uh, as awards on on your wall or something like trophies because these titles that they're giving you, I mean, the role that you're doing is just so incredible to think about. And uh, to be placed in that role, I'm sure there's a, you, you feel that weight of a responsibility. Uh, and so let's let's talk about that actually specifically for a little bit because you have done really, really well in your career to be able to put yourself in a position of trust and to get the job done essentially wherever you go. I mean, whether it was on the national IMAT, you, you had this reputation for just like just manhandling the event. And then you get into you know FEMA headquarters and you're putting these these incredible roles for those emergency managers or those logisticians whatever who are like man I just wish I was more impactful I wish I could do more in my my career what advice would you give them? Well, luck is certainly uh, one word for it. Uh, I don't know that <laughs> I would use that, but I'm also not on a seven second delay, so I won't use the word that I I would choose for this. Um, you, you're you're right, and one of the certificates back there does have the last title on it. I haven't gotten one for this one yet, but uh, uh, good observation. Yeah. Uh, you know, in in reference to, to how it got done, uh, honestly, I mean, it, it's it's opportunity and preparedness. Um, my educational background is in public health, which up until this point, I've really really minimally used it um, in my career at FEMA. We we deployed back in '14 to Ebola but that was largely administrative, uh, wasn't overly operational. And it just so happened that we lined up this uh, last round, and it just seems like it's been one one after another, right? We talked last time, I just got off the testing, and only about two weeks later I got onto this. It, it just lined up to me to be a, uh, a situation where what was able to actually get, get involved at, at another high level. Just They said, hey, this guy, we gave him the, the hardest thing last time. He did okay with it. I guess we'll, we'll give him that again. So advice, uh, take as many classes as you can, uh, be prepared and, and know your strengths and, and your weaknesses because just how I got the opportunity to do this twice because we were successful last time. If we uh, if we crash and burned last time, I'm not sure they would have tagged me to do it a second time. So know your strengths, know your limitations. Take every opportunity uh, that, that you, you can, especially young in your career, which I used to say young in my career. It's been over eight years now, so I guess I'm I'm not as young in my career as I would have liked to have been. But um, you know, um, just take those opportunities as they come to you, and, and don't be afraid to turn something down if you don't know what you're doing. Because uh, you know, one screw up will outdo a lot of attaboys. So that's, that's uh, something to keep in mind for those uh, those emerging in the field. Yeah, that's a that's a really good. Most people don't say that, but I think there's a lot of value in that. In fact, I I think there's, I I think that can actually open some doors for you, but just by saying, hey, that's not my background. To be able to be brave enough to say that puts you in a position of trust, right? But like, I, to be honest, Joe, like, I don't think you've really ever had to do that, to, to be real. Like, because every time I've seen you, like, so when I joined the national team, there was already this crazy reputation for like, just Joe has to do a million different things and he's always able to get all of them done. And that was before, like you and I even really started talking. And so you have you've always had this reputation for just hard work. Like you will you will get the job done if you give it to Joe. Like you you'll do it. And so like there's you've had probably very uh, limited uh, 
uh, opportunity to say like, hey, I don't do that because you're able to do so much. And so like that call out to just keep learning, keep training, I think that's probably why you're able to do that, right? Because you you keep see- seeking that stuff out. Um, on that same vein, like your your position now, I, I like how you said, hey, I didn't wasn't really using my degree, but there was an opportunity to rise, opportunity to preparation, and you're able to to attack. And uh, you know, kudos to you for doing such an, a a great job with that. Um, you know, there at FEMA. So what is like the next steps there then uh, with the pandemic? What, what do you, I mean, if you've been doing all things pandemic, you still had 300 disasters you guys deployed to last year that you guys were dealing with last year. So what is 2021? What does 22 projections look like for FEMA and for you? Well, I can tell you um, kind of the, for me and for FEMA are, are kind of one and the same. I always, to be whatever we're working on i always seem to get tagged in some regard which i'm thankful for <laughs> yeah. i'm always happy to, to work is i'd rather be too busy than too bored so um i i think one of the, the things you know we're still working on the vaccine campaign we're not done yet i still got over six thousand uh folks from the federal family deployed uh given shots right now uh we just awarded um the national covid 19 vaccination contract which is uh the largest ceiling contract in uh, FEMA's history. Wow. Uh, that just got awarded, just got through Congress, and, and that's uh, that's out and rolling now. And that's going to take a lot of the federal uh, resources um, out of the fight and replace them with contractors, um, mm. which is what we need because we need to retool and get folks back in the sack and ready to go for hurricane season. And, and we're using assets, for example, that do firefighting. It's already fire season. So, um, FEMA, you know, obviously getting ready for the next one is what we do best. Uh, but, you know, as one of your previous guests, uh, Brock Long, and a big fan of Brock Long, and a call out to him, he said if FEMA was a car engine, it had been redlining since 2017. We're still redlining, and, and we're still we're still past that point where um, we, we would be that I've seen in the past prior to right around 2017. So we're going to go at this 100 miles an hour until we complete it. We're going to go at the next thing 100 miles an hour, and then we're seeing new mission spaces for FEMA. I mean, obviously, right now, the Colonial Pipeline attack is going on. Prior to the the pandemic, we had a big cybersecurity planning exercise we had to cancel because of the pandemic. You know, I can see those efforts ticking back up now. It just seems to be that we're kind of the government's duct tape for whenever something breaks. So um, Mm. who knows what's on the horizon? Obviously, we're a hurricane organization. That's really been what we've done. Mm. Uh, We've evolved into the pandemic space. We've evolved into the adversary-based threat space with, um, you know, active terrorism, active cyber, uh, you know, security. But, you know, we're still still in that business where we're going to do whatever we're asked to do by the chief executive. And uh, it seems like that mission space grows constantly so yeah you know we're gonna keep doing this until probably july and then we'll see what happens hopefully it's a quiet hurricane season yeah good luck with that i mean last year was the most named hurricanes in u.s history so yeah i mean i mean you bring up a good point brock brought up a good point with the redlining and you you obviously touched on that i liked what pete said to me uh on the last week's episode where he said um you know, most of what FEMA does obviously is like dollars and recovery or dollars and mitigation. But uh, this was like one of, one of the first examples with the pandemic as an agency wide 
they're working in prevention of loss of life in an active disaster. You know, with the IMAP, we'd get in there and we would try to support the state. And that was response. But that's such a small scale compared to the entire agency working on this. What is one of the after actions now that you're pulling out of that almost response phase? Hopefully, response to recovery here fairly soon. I mean, again, kudos to FEMA. Kudos to, to everybody to to meeting that mission of, uh, you know, 100 million people vaccinated for that campaign promise and beyond. What what are the after actions now? What are you looking at? You know, the after action, I never thought after action planning would ever be so uh, involved and I'd ever be actually interested to read one of these after action plans, especially. <laughs> I mean, you've seen it on the disasters, John, you get the after action planning person that seems like they're coming out on a disaster vacation. They write some <laughs> stuff down and the recommendations are all stuff you already knew. Um, I can tell you our after action shop was big on the last mission, obviously between uh, the uh, operation air bridge and then, um, you know, our testing operation, you know, we, we've definitely seen some lessons learned from there. Uh, and then we're learning a lot here, particularly, you know, it's less of a FEMA after action because what we're doing in FEMA is no different than what we normally do. It's just on a greater scale, right? So FEMA's business has always just been logistics. Another call out to Brock Long, he says, the only reason you get fired is if you fail in logistics, right? So um, we're, we're not going to fail in logistics and we haven't. What we're doing is we're moving basically people, money, and things around. Um, and, and we're learning that some of our other federal partners are not as used to this level of um, battle rhythm or this level of deployability. So a lot of these actions um, are going to be more after actions for our federal partners because we, you know, as a FEMA employee, and I'm sure you had to do the same thing, when you signed up, you had to sign a form that said every employee is an emergency manager, and I understand I may be deployed at any time. Well, the people that I'm deploying from the federal family, a lot of them didn't have to sign that. And a lot of them had to pull their personnel off of active jobs to get them to do this. And I think it speaks back to national readiness where, you know, your skill set might be needed where you don't think so. And here's the example I'll give. Um, at the peak of this, I had over 6,500 personnel deployed at the same time. Um for uh, the, the clinical side of the vaccine campaign. Yeah. Um, and, and then that's inclusive of the whole federal family to include DOD. But one of the shortfalls that we realized uh, quickly was in pharmacies. Uh, there are just not enough pharmacists that work for the federal government. It got to the point where DOD was having to close some of their clinics to support the general population. Um, it got to that point. So we started mm -hmm. figuring out, okay, what are these pharmacists actually doing? And we came up with the ologist um, approach where what they're doing, obviously, is, is uh, required work of a licensed pharmacist, but all of the technician jobs underneath them, reconstituting, mixing, thawing of vaccines, that's something that anyone with a general science background can do. So what we did was we did a quick search on USA Jobs for categories in the 13 and 1400 class that are scientists. And we started deploying people that aren't pharmacy technicians, but I have soil scientists from EPA. Um, mm -hmm. I have industrial hygienists from Department of Labor. Um, we have uh, folks that were uh, generally over at the Smithsonian that did like some kind of uh, like agriculture science. We had biological science technicians that generally work for USDA in farm uh, domestic uh, uh, biological substances. And we said, hey, can you mix these vaccines? And, and they could. But the, the real part in that, the lesson learned in that is these are folks that have worked at the same lab all the time, the same clinic all the time. They didn't have travel cards. 
They didn't have any kind of, because they've never had to travel to work. They didn't have any kind of like preparedness, family preparedness. When we deploy mm. the team, we know to tell our families we'll be back in 30 days or whatever the case may be. Yeah. None of these folks had that. So how do we greater prepare the federal workforce, even if they're not a 0089 emergency manager, how do mm. we prepare them to have that same mobility if the call to action comes? And I think that's one of the biggest after actions we'll take away from this. I'm I'm not kidding when I say this. I think you should write a book about that. Seriously, if you're talking about um, like the that that single after action point, you could probably write a 200 page like document that you know or book just just explaining that. I mean that is fascinating to think about. You're right because of Craig Fugate. Speaking of another female administrator, we got now three. We'll see if we can bring up a fourth or a fifth on the call, but uh, <laughs> Brownie, right? Uh, there we go. There's a fourth. Um, He's already got a show. Does he have a show? Oh, man. I believe he, he hosts a radio show in Colorado, as uh, far as I know. Oh, my gosh. I got to get him on the show then. He seems like a nice guy. But uh, anyways, so every single... there was Craig Fugate was on the show talking about how they switched over everybody to, you're an emergency manager. You could be deployed. And he said he wanted to just make that a, a fast and, and quick rule within FEMA. And there was a lot of pushback by people who, like like you said, were in, in, in FEMA. And they're like, wait, I didn't sign up for that. you know. And there was a cultural change that it took a couple years to get every single person at FEMA to sign that document, let alone in the federal government. Under the federal government, everyone should have to sign that, essentially because of Stafford Act, right? And so... That's a great call out during a national emergency uh, under, you know, the Stafford Act. Every single federal employee should have to have that that level of preparedness set up so that they could understand that essentially they'll be working for FEMA uh, in a disaster, you know. Um, so that's that's really fascinating that you, you bring that up, to be honest. And I, I've heard all these, you know, all these after actions, after actions. That is the first one I've heard that I'm like that needs to be implemented immediately, right? Because it makes sense. I would, great great example. A good friend of mine now, I talk to him every once in a while, Sean Rooney. Sean Rooney was uh, Department of Homeland Security and not deployable, never deployed. And we needed more GIS assets. So uh, DHS said they were going to send out four people. They sent out him, didn't do GIS, he was a writer. And he got on the field and he's like, hey, I'm going to be here for 30 days. I can go to the library and learn GIS if you want. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, that's that's not how we're going to use you. Uh, we figured out his capability and got him in and mixed in the tempo. And 30 days later, you know, he helped us get at the drone because he did all the write up for the drone. And um, that was like a like a big shout out to him. But a guy who had military experience, who's part of the federal government, was part of DHS didn't understand like that that operational tempo and uh, what was required there. And, you know, to his credit, he learned. But I can only imagine how many people either pushed back or didn't understand or just, you know, like I said, just lacked that competency that you, you brought up. Just fascinating to think about. Um, do you think that do you think that hurt your response at all by them just having to deal with those personnel things? Yeah, I can give you an example. We did a call out um, under what's called Surge Capacity Force, which is DHS Surge Capacity Force was created, I believe it was created during Sandy, and it was to fill positions for FEMA employees to augment our regular duties and program areas. Well, we tried to use Surge Capacity Force to fill 
clinical because we understand other DHS components like Border Patrol, which we deployed some of them, and um, ICE and those folks have medical folks because they run prisons or or they run occupational health programs or something. So we started doing call outs to them to get them rostered, but because they aren't filling a FEMA job, because FEMA doesn't have clinical personnel, um, you know, they weren't necessarily rostered and we were running into all kinds of problems. Um, that we would get a, a, I did a memo DHS wide and people were just replying back to me. I was getting random, you know, guys that work at, you know, USCIS that used to be combat medics. Hey, I can come for three days, but then I have a bar mitzvah to go to and I can't go. So I can come for these three days and these two days later, uh, you know, or, Hey, I can only come after work from seven to nine or, Hey, I can only go um, in the beltway area. So it was just a lot of this. And they were all just replying direct to me. Like I was waiting on them. Like they were the only guy I was waiting on to get rid of COVID-19. So, um, you know, and out of that whole thing, we only got about four people, despite the fact that we probably were dealing with a pool of, of over a thousand uh, because all these folks, they had all these questions. What should I wear? You know, all of these like weird admin questions because none of them have ever been prepared. And a lot of them don't have travel cards. Yeah. You brought the travel cards. Part of the agency. They don't, they don't have it. They just, there's never been a need. If you're, if you're a nurse at an occupational health clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, you've probably never had to go anywhere on official business before. So a lot of them didn't have it. So a lot of them were geo-locked to those areas that we, uh, that we, you know, if we, if we needed them in that area it would work, but you know, not every town got one of these uh, uh, community vaccination sites. Do you think that should be standard for all federal employees to have a travel card? I think so. Um, I know um, I, I'm a, also a member of the Coast Guard Reserve. Every single reservist gets a travel card regardless of their job is to guard the same gate at the same base for their whole career. Or if they're part of a deployable detachment, every single person is part of your uh, requirements uh, every year to have a travel card. So I think that's a good model, I think, mm. for a lot of a lot of uh, federal agencies, particularly those occupation sets that we just don't have a lot of throughout the government. We probably don't need every secretary to have one, but there's just not as many nurses as one might think in the federal government. Folks like that, it would be helpful. You know, it doesn't take much yeah. as a contingency. You don't have to fund it. You can put a penny on it to keep it open. It might be something that takes a long time to do, but it's not a difficult thing, really, uh, administrative burden at all. The mechanism is already there. So that's one solution, right? Okay, every 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 federal employee gets a travel card. Done. Next solution uh, that you have to deal with is that preparedness level. Do you think that in their orientation for their job that there, there should be like a one hour, hey, you are a federal employee, that means Stafford Act, and Stafford Act means... If the worst of the worst happens, we get to deploy you. And do you think it'd be easier to, to make that that pitch to do that because of COVID now? You know, I, yes and no. I think that to do the pitch at an orientation point wouldn't be much of a challenge. I think it's when it comes time to operationalize that. So I think when it comes time to um, actually push these folks out the door, and that's where, where we ran into our stopping point. Because FEMA, we can give you a FEMA travel card. We can put you on centralized billing. And, and we can pay for your travel and stuff. We can rent your hotel for you. The problem was getting that individual employee supervisor mm. or supervisory chain to approve it. And we did this during a huge transition period in the federal government. You know, with the new administration, all of the new cabinet members were coming in. And a lot of them that were asking them to do something we never asked any of their predecessors to do. So they're hesitant to allow their folks to deploy. I mean, we were pulling you know, biological science technicians off out of laboratories that make defense materials. Mm. 
and asking them to go out and do vaccines. And, you know, as a new Department of Ag secretary might look at that and say, that's hurting my mission to be prepared with, you know, biological agents. You know, that's hurting my mission at the EPA to provide safe drinking water. I'm not going to provide those personnel uh, because I- I'm worried I'm new in this position. I'm, I don't know the state of everything. So, mm. you know, having the individual employee ready is important, but also getting the agency's concurrence to allow those employees. A lot of these agencies don't have excess staff to sit around waiting for FEMA, right? Those type of folks would get a reduction in force if that happens. So, you know, convincing, you know, cabinet level folks to shutter certain programs for 30 or 60 days to help us, that's really where the hard part comes in. Yeah, that's a competency issue. That's an ego issue. Yeah. Um, that's a lack of... Uh, when I say competency, what I really mean is uh, we always talk about transfer transfer of power, peaceful transfer of power, right? Uh, part of that process probably should be a training mechanism for the the old and the new uh, cabinet level or whatever. You know, any anytime there's a switch, uh, I would hope that, you know, uh, I'm sure he did. Brock gave plenty of advice to Pete and Pete probably gave plenty, plenty of advice to uh, Deanne Criswell. And I, I'm sure that that just happened because, you know, our, our field matches a little bit better, but when you get higher up and it gets political, man, that's, that's, uh, that's one area that we, we have to all work a little bit better on to make sure that, um, the mission goes above the person. Right. So a uh, great call out there. What would be another solution? I'm just curious. I'm just diving down the rabbit hole at this point. What would you change? I, there's there's a whole lot of things that, that need to be changed. And a lot of it is um, goes down to the state level, as I've heard, uh, you know, some of the former administrators that were on here also talk about, you know, states need to take a little more responsibility for this mission also. So um, the same way where there's all these moral hazards that are created by some of the uh, under insurance that they have in the traditional disaster realm, we yeah. see a lot of states that don't want to take responsibility or they want to push it to the federal government. Um, and, and we're getting, uh, for example, we just did a request uh, a couple of days ago to set up a mobile vaccination site in a very rural state. And on that request came about 24 personnel, clinical personnel, which, okay, I mean, I, I'm hard pressed to think a state doesn't have 24 EMTs sitting around, but okay, we'll fill that. But on that also came things like traffic cones mm. and sawhorses and tables and minivans. And I'm thinking, does that entire state, is there a national shortage on traffic cones? Does that entire state not have the ability to provide 100 traffic cones for this site? Yeah. You know, is there a big shortage on minivans? Can they not go to Enterprise the same way the federal government would go to Enterprise and rent a minivan? So I think a lot of these states are all too happy to just pass the buck and not look internally at what they have available. So we, yeah. for example, Title 32, National Guard assets, FEMA has authorized the expenditure for a certain amount of National Guard assets in every state. So depending on how many forces you have, how many are deployed overseas, how many are available, there's been a what we call a force cap developed for every state. And say it's 3,000 personnel. I get those force cap numbers every day. How many of the authorized 3,000 are deployed? Some states are 40 or 50 people are deployed under that force cap. They don't want to use their guardsmen. And then they're asking me for 100, 150 staff. And my first thing is, why aren't you using your guard? Yeah. And a lot of times when we send those questions back to them, we don't get that request back again. Because <laughs> a lot of them, they know they can do it. A lot yeah. of them don't want to do it. 
Well, they're not incentivized to do it. There's no like that was a Brock Long thing. There was no incentive incentivization. That's a word. I think that's a word. Uh, to get, get these states to say, hey, if we if we do everything we can to mitigate, if we put it, the, the dollars in the right spot, we put the person on the right spot, our cost share should go up with the federal government in disaster. That's what Brock's pitch is essentially. Like the federal government will fit a higher bill. But if they do a lot less, the federal government shouldn't have to pay for so much. And I, I kind of tend to agree with that. Um, I, I think there's lots of ways to do that. But it's like that um, 1978 Flood Insurance Policy Act or whatever, the the Flood Insurance Act. That's that's what caused all the states to be like, wait, I don't need to put this in my budget because you'll bail me out if we say we don't have the budget. It's like, oh, sorry, I put my I, I put that all towards another project. Sorry, I don't have any money. You need to come in. So, something to think about. Man, really fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah. And you're absolutely spot on with that. A lot of the states, they even though it's 100% cost share, they're not incentivized to do it because they know we'll bail them out. And I, I think at some point, when we're going back to them and saying, we don't have this resource, you know, it's incredible to see that it's almost, we are not a plan A. And that's, yeah. that's really the thing. People look at us too much as a plan A or like 911. Um, just to give an example, because the fuel thing is very popular right now with the colonial pipeline. If you need fuel in Maine, for example, the state of Maine can go and get fuel a lot easier than the federal government can. We have a fuel contract, national fuel contract. It's about $60 a gallon for unleaded. And that's because that fuel had to be sourced handled, shipped, somebody has to monitor it, there's a program management office, all of that, by the time it gets from the refinery to your gas tank, it costs $60 for Jeez. that tank of fuel, for that, that one gallon of fuel. Whereas if the state just went and did it locally, you'd cut out so many of those project management costs, and they're all still reimbursable. So that's the other thing, especially right now, this is a 100% cost share for the vaccine campaign. Right. So for me to go to a local hospital and com commission a nurse that's already working in that state to pick up extra shifts for FEMA, that cost of that nurse is going to be $150 an hour with all of the project management costs that are incurred. Whereas if the state just went and said, hey, nurse so-and-so, what do you make an hour? 30? Okay, we'll give you 35 to come pull an extra shift for us. If they did that locally, they could cut down on so many of these costs. But a lot of the time, we are the easy button. And mm. uh, that is a moral hazard, as Brock Long would say, because the more and more you continue to, to feed the animals, the more and more uh, they rely on you to be fed. So that's a real challenge that we run into. The, uh, the, the bird and the French fry uh, analogy, right? If you give a bird a French fry, they'll never eat anything else. Yeah, it's a it's a really good call out. Okay, so uh, you've given several solutions at the federal level. You've given a couple solutions at the state level to say, hey, you know, don't use us as your easy button. You can do it a lot cheaper and it's reimbursable. So it's just it's fiscally responsible. It's it's that get rid of that moral hazard. Let's talk about the local level. Um, I always like to pull on the local level, even the tribes. You know, we we we've been working with tribes here at Doberman, and we're really grateful to do that. And sometimes they get left out of the conversation. So whether you're a tribal nation or you're a, a local emergency manager and you're still dealing with COVID and you're, you're looking at all these different things, what would you tell them if you were like, if you were representing FEMA and you're just said, Hey, as a FEMA guy, this is what you should be learning from us right now. What would, what would be some of your solutions to them? 
So locals and tribes are both very similar in the fact that they are the lowest level of government for whatever their locale is. And we are dealing with several tribes direct, and we're also dealing with a couple uh, that are coming through their state, and we're dealing with them as uh, a, a sub-grantee. Uh, a couple items. One, um, all disasters are local, right? We've heard that a hundred times. So, um, and as a chief elected official on a tribe or a mayor in a city, you should want your flag to be on that recovery operation. If I was the mayor of Washington, D.C., I would not want a bunch of people wearing FEMA shirts or Air Force uniforms or whatever running around vaccinating my citizens. I would want somebody wearing a D.C. patch vaccinating my citizens. The same should go for tribes, right? So it does start locally. And, you know, having a robust medical reserve corps, for example, most large UASI or urban area security initiative cities have a medical reserve corps. Having uh, robust relationships with hospitals. I'll do a shout out to uh, my home state of Connecticut. Connecticut has asked for, they're, by the way, they're leading the country in uh, vaccinations per capita. Now, Connecticut is almost at 80% That's of their awesome. citizens vaccinated. Which is 80% of their citizens are vaccinated? Yes. We anticipate that coming into June, that will be uh, 80% in Connecticut will be the first state to cross the threshold. And the reason for that is um, a lot of their, so they have a very strong medical community there, a lot of research with, um, you know, their their universities up there, certainly. But the other thing is their state public health has a robust network of private sector partners. So they have four or five hospital networks that they are utilizing to staff mobile vaccination clinics. Mm. So depending on where the mobile vaccination clinic is going to be that week, they send their personnel from the local hospital. And it does two things. One, it provides the local doctor, nurse, EMT, kind of that sense of ownership and satisfaction that they're helping fellow countrymen, people that are in their cities, they may be vaccinating their friends and family. So it provides that sense. And also, it does a great thing for us because we're not taking staff from another state another locality and taking them out of their job as a nurse at a hospital in Indiana and now putting them in a hospital in Connecticut to do the same job. We're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. Mm -hmm. All they're doing is saying, Hey, you normally work Monday through Friday. Can you pull an extra shift on Saturday? We're going to do a vaccine event. And if you do that enough times, you'll staff out the whole week. And Connecticut has done that. They have three, what we call mobile vaccination units that rove around the state. They're basically a, uh, a double wide trailer that gets towed around, set up. It's got a sub-zero freezer on it to store a vaccine and they are distributing vaccines and they're staffing it with the personnel that work at, in those localities. That's and so that awesome. That is the best way to do it. Uh, that's a model we should have replicated across the board. Obviously, some states don't have that capability to go to rural areas of Alaska, New Mexico, Oregon. You're, you're not going to have that level of, of medical uh, capability, mm. but you also have less people. So, yeah. you know, there, there are things that could be done in that, in, in that landscape that I just, thus far, I think a lot of states have been pushing the easy button and not taking that ownership. I'm, I'm surprised that Rhode Island isn't going to be the first state to cross the threshold. I learned that... You would think because of the size. <laughs> I learned They're up that there, the, too. They're up there, too. Y- Yosemite, the national park, is the same size as Rhode Island, and then I just lost it. You know, it's just like, oh, my gosh, man, like... That's pretty incredible to think about that solution. Again, mobile vaccination sites. You're talking about all these solutions, and I love that. Uh, remind me of the the, the the role or the title that they gave you for this, the vaccination coordinator. 
Yeah, National Vaccination Coordinator. That's... And a dollar gets you a cup of coffee. Hold up. Hold up. Uh, wait for it. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, you clearly deserve it. I just loved hearing you talk about all the innovative solutions. This happened last time, too, I talked to you. I was blown away by all the innovation that had to happen to get up testing. Coca-Cola, Sriracha, and you know others like now making the vaccine vaccination the vials and the mixing and everything else and now you're talking about you know uh all the different federal agencies and people working to do the mixing and keeping it up and do vaccination sites and mobile vaccination sites and to be able to have the data to be able to say hey uh they're doing it phenomenally in uh, connecticut and all disasters are local and had all the innovation that has had to go in there you should like you should be the the chief uh innovative officer for uh for FEMA that's what it sounds like on my end but it's just incredible to to hear this and to to get that like running total i got to get on i got to get you to come on like every like 6 months or so to give us the update because i feel like every time you're going to come on you're like yeah we uh we talked to Elon Musk and uh we're just going to like rebuild the earth now um no big deal cuz that's kind of what you're doing but you're like the Elon. Oh, there you go. You're the Elon Musk of FEMA. That's basically your role. No big deal. But um, that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool stuff that you're doing over there. So uh, as I as I asked last time, because we're gonna wrap it up here in a second, because I, I respect your time and I want to get you uh, saving lives through innovation again through FEMA, I guess. But um, I really appreciate you coming on here. The same question I asked you last time, I'm going to ask you again and see if it's either changed or if it's solidified at all for you. If you could change one thing in the career of emergency management right now to impact the future in a positive way, what would you want to see emergency management change? So that's that's a really good question. And uh, I, I just want to, before we break, I just want to point out one thing. Last time we was on this, you asked me when you think we would be vaccinated and I believe we both landed on July. Yeah. And I believe we're both yeah. going to be correct. We're probably about seventy percent of this country by July. So uh, that's I'll awesome. I'll share the applause with you on that one. That's uh, there it is. We nailed it. <laughs> yeah, that's cool to think question. about. Yeah, that's really cool to think about how we talked about that. And I'm I've been vaccinated. I'm proud that I've been vaccinated. And uh, like the faster more. <laughs> Anybody that's holding off at this point, I'm like, you realize you're the reason why everything's still shut down, right? Like, I don't even care anymore. That's why I got vaccinated. Do I think it's life-threatening for me? No. Do I kind of care about the next guy down the road? Yes, that's why I did it. But I also just want to return to normal. Just give me the stupid shot. We're fine. Move on. You know? Anyways, so that's that's awesome that you're going to be on target for that goal, though. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. A third time. Fourth time. All right. To your question, though, I, I think this whole thing of emergency management as an emerging profession in an emerging industry starts with a public information campaign, and it goes down to people in businesses thinking preparedness and agencies that aren't FEMA thinking about contingencies and preparedness and local and state thinking about the next step, the what if, because Really, in emergency management, a lot of it, just like anything else in, in the public uh, sector, comes down to budgeting. And in emergency management, we are asking our budget committees to give us money for things that we all hope don't happen. 
So we're asking people for money for tools and programs we hope we'll never have to use, right? <laughs> we want preparedness yeah. money in case we get bombed. We hope we don't get bombed. And if you're a budgetary person, you're going to have a hard time putting money into the counter bombing fund if you don't ever use it because that's how people, budgetary folks think. So yeah. getting that culture of preparedness where people are thinking about the what if, if COVID-19 has done anything, it's helped businesses think about the what if, right? The, okay, if I do have to go down to 25% capacity in my restaurant, what does that look like for my staff? How do I downsize? What does it look like for my shipments that I get in of food? Obviously, it's going to be less. What does it look like for my prices, my hours of operation, the cost of rent on my building? So building that culture of preparedness, that culture of what if, is what everybody needs to be involved in from, from a macular level, because this could, COVID-20 can come. I don't know. This could happen again. So we could be in a situation where we need to be prepared, and it would really be unfortunate if we threw the baby out with the bathwater after this whole thing is over with, and we didn't take those key lessons learned. So new emergency managers, I'm seeing constantly uh, new programs, collegiate-level programs emerging for emergency managers. Uh, I was part of a planning cell that worked on a uh, – uh, the Coast Guard is finally developing a degree program for emergency managers at the Coast Guard. That's Academy. awesome. Um, all of these things because people are realizing this is an industry that isn't going away. And the more complex the battlefield is, the more of an, a contingencies are possible. So there's more threats with new technology, with all, all kinds of new development, emerges new threats. And we need to be prepared as emergency managers. Because the best emergency management plan is one you don't ever have to use because your mitigation plan was that successful and that well thought out. So that's what we need to be thinking about from an enterprise level. Okay, that's a drop the mic quote moment for sure. We just found our quote for the show. By the way, um, if I would have closed my eyes and listened to you, I would have been... I don't know. That, that maybe that's a stupid way to say. It. If I would have read, there we go. If I would have read your text without you, without knowing it was you, I would think that that was Pete Gaynor. Pete Gaynor, uh, last week on the show, said almost everything you just said verbatim. Education, uh, stocking. Uh, 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 it's all about preparedness, mitigation. Everything you just said. Um, I'm going to put in my first vote. Uh, I don't know if I get a vote, but first vote for uh, Joe Delamura for next FEMA admin in uh, eight years or whatever. So uh, seriously, like what you're saying is people, people who are very influential also say the exact same thing. And there's a reason it's, it comes back to that point that I said earlier. Uh, you, you talked about luck and opportunity. And I, I don't really think you had a lot of luck. I think you have prepared very, very well. I think you're an extremely hard worker. I think you get the job done. I think people know that and you, they have that level of trust and confidence because you're able to, to, to get out there and do it. And I am really proud that we're friends and I'm, I'm grateful that you know you have been just been crushing it uh, for our country for the last you know 18 months on this and uh, continue to do so. And so I, I just thank you again for coming onto the show. And uh, for saying some really good things, I think emergency managers have to hear that. I think it's time that we start addressing colleges and universities and saying, you need to up your programs. You need to do better in your programs um, and and really get people prepared uh, for going into a field that you're right. Uh, if you're talking to a budgetary person, they're going to be like, wait, why do I need this? And people are starting to wake up. 
uh, they're starting to realize that this stuff goes and goes away and their life it gets exponentially more difficult without preparedness, whether they're a federal employee or whether they're a, they're a, a municipality and they're trying to mitigate a threat, uh, mitigation, um, and preparedness changes the game for everybody. Great call outs. So with that being said, I got to find my cue over here. Joe, thanks again for coming on the show. And, and seriously, uh, the great advice. And we got to get you come back on like six months or so, four months. And uh, actually, maybe right after July and see if you're across that threshold and, and where the nation's at. So thanks again for coming on the show. You got it, John. I look forward to July. The mission success will be in direct correlation to how much hair I have left at that point. So uh, <laughs> actually, all you, you have to do is get a snapshot of me. I was going to say, you actually have more hair than the last time you were on the show. So I don't know. Maybe maybe that shows that the country's uh, doing better. Maybe you'll have like a... Have you ever seen Fletch? The movie Fletch? No. He, he falls asleep. He's in the dream. And uh, it's Chevy Chase. And he's dribbling a basketball. And the announcer goes... He's six five, six nine with the afro, and he's like has this giant afro. Maybe that'll be you in like August. You'll just be like on some beach somewhere uh, with a giant, you know, thing of hair. So that would be awesome. But uh, we can only hope. Yeah, I hope. I hope that uh, we make a major turning point. I hope that people get vaccinated. I hope that we just keep driving down the down that road. In the meantime, I'm going to do one more call out. I usually don't do this for my sponsors, but um, you know. The electronic, putting it on your arm, reusable COVID test, that monitoring thing to be able to get people back in schools or whatever, that is so huge. And, um, you know, I, I got to give that call out, shout out to them because I've done the nose swabs. I'm sick of the nose swabs. Put it on your arm. Why, you know, let, let's just get over this COVID thing. And I think that uh, that's a big game changer there. Okay. So I've never done that for a sponsor before. So you're welcome, uh, FS Global and Tiger Tech. Uh, let's end the show. So if you like Joe's show, give us that five-star rating and subscribe. As always, as we always say, you can send us an email if you have a, a question or you need some more advice about Joe, what Joe was talking about. You want to work with Doberman Emergency Management, you can send us an email at info at DobermanEMG.com. But if you have a, an, a question for Joe, you have a comment, you liked what he had to say, please, please, please use our social media channels. You can either use Disaster Tough Podcast on Instagram or you can use uh, Doberman Emergency Management on LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever. Send us that there. That'll be the fastest way that Joe can see it and respond to it. Uh, and then tune in to next week when we come back. Thanks. <laughs>